0: Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Terry Lee, I'm the pastor here. I want you to know that whether you are a first time guest or you call the Oaks Church home, I'm so thankful that you are worshiping with us this morning. We're going to continue our series in the book of Mark. We're called, what we've called Walking with Jesus. So if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and find Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a copy of God's word, That is totally okay. The words will be on the screen behind me, but we would also love to give you a Bible as you leave today. So come meet me at the Connect table. We'll send you home with a gift bag just to thank you for being here and also a Bible so that you can get into God's word throughout the week as well. Uh, One announcement real quick is that we are having an interest meeting for the Miami mission trip that is taking place September 15th through 18th in the cry room after the gathering today at 12 o'clock. So if you're interested in going on that mission trip, uh, being one of the medical professionals that provide health screenings, or being a part of the team that does construction on the building, or you wanna be like me and you don't really have any of those skills, so you're just there to help with whatever, come, come be a part of that interest meeting. It should be a good time. As I was thinking about the passage that we're gonna be looking at today, uh, I was reminded that for the most part, We like to live above authority. If you think about it, we don't really like authority. We often view speed limits kind of as these legal suggestions. Maybe not everybody, but I think there's almost this skepticism. We often, you know, question legislature or community guidelines for whatever reason. And I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing, but I just think in general, authority kind of gets a bad rap in our culture. And I've experienced this personally. So recently when Abby and I went on our anniversary trip a few weeks ago, uh, there was this rule uh, that there was no paddle boarding, no stand-up paddle boarding on a surfboard allowed whenever it was red flag. And here's this kind of creeping temptation to undermine authority within your pastor. Man. <laughs> so I tried to convince the lifeguard. I was like, you know, I think I could handle it. Like, I went out yesterday and, you know, things, things went all right. I'm pretty sure that I could kind of skate above, you know, this, this law that is set in place, this legal limit that has been provided. Because I thought, hey, I'm, I'm an exception because I've got experience doing this. Now, I'm convinced that maybe I would have been just fine going paddleboarding in a red flag zone. No, no big deal. Uh, but what happens when we carry that same line of thinking into other aspects of our life? What happens whenever we begin to, to think that authority doesn't matter whenever it comes to maybe our, our personal lives, the health of our relationships, and the way that we treat other people, or perhaps the way that we view God and the authority that He has? How does that affect our soul? Uh, The case that I will make today in this passage is that we should affirm and submit to Christ's authority because he is the cornerstone. That we should both affirm Christ's authority, but further than that, we should submit to Christ's authority. Why? Because he is the cornerstone. He alone is worthy to build our lives upon As we get into Mark chapter 11, I want to remind you that in the previous scene, what we saw last week is that it was Tuesday of Passover week. We know that Friday Christ will be crucified. He's predicted his crucifixion and his coming resurrection. And so he goes into the temple. He he drives out the money changers and those who are seeking to turn God's place of worship into a marketplace And whenever we come to this story in chapter 11, verse 27, we're going to see that it is Wednesday of Passover week. So if you have God's word, pick up with me in verse 27. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well what word was repeated there again and again for us? authority. Why are we talking about authority? Clearly, it is a theme of this passage that Christ wants us to learn more about through the pen of Paul or through the pen of Mark. The first thing that I want you to see in this passage is that we should affirm and submit to Christ's authority. Right, here we find in these verses a call to affirm and submit to Christ's authority. After Jesus cleansed the temple, going in, overturning the seats of these overpriced sacrifice dealers and these crooks that were wearing these religious robes, he then returns back to Bethany, the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. That's where he was staying on the nights of Passover week. But then the next day, Wednesday, he returns to the temple as we see here. Verse 27, he came again to Jerusalem. Uh, The tempers of the religious leaders that he kind of uh, flustered the day before had somewhat cooled, and yet what we will find is that their plot to get rid of Jesus hadn't changed at all. They ultimately desired to confront him and kill him. So whenever Jesus walked into the temple, we see three groups greet him with a question. Verse 27, he was walking into the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, these are the very groups that Jesus mentioned whenever he has prophesied his crucifixion and resurrection three times, saying that these would be the ones ultimately who would try him unfairly and it would result in his death. These guys made up uh, the Sanhedrin. So think of kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. They were the religious leaders. They were the leading authority whenever it came to religious life, which is why they're asking this question. And in recent days, their authority had been challenged by Jesus. So now they're asking a question with the goal of undermining the authority of Christ that he just displayed in the temple, that he has displayed through his miraculous works. So they ask the question in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them Now, what things are they referring to? They're referring to uh, the miracles, perhaps, that Jesus performed, but most likely the events that took place the day before, whenever he says, hey, my house is a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he begins teaching all the people, and the people marvel at what Jesus is teaching. Their question here was not motivated by curiosity. That's not why they're asking Jesus these things. This is intended to be a gotcha question whenever it comes to what Jesus' response says. Now, this is a tricky question because it it puts Jesus in a difficult position either way. If Jesus says here, well, my authority comes because I am the Son of God. I, I am the second person of the Trinity. I'm equal with the Father. If he says that, then according to Leviticus 24, they can say he's committing blasphemy in saying this, and they can condemn him to death. Now, ultimately, this is the claim, one of the claims that they would make, but this is not what happens here. Now, if Jesus says, well, I'm I'm speaking upon my own authority, this is the authority that I have, then they would say, well, this guy is crazy. No one can say that they are doing these things by their own authority, because that would be to act apart from God, and they would just dismiss any of his claims. And so, anticipating their harmful intentions, Jesus uses this rabbinical technique Uh, that was designed to kind of move two people from opposing parties into kind of one conclusion by asking a question to their question. And what it's actually going to do is expose uh, their harmful intentions, and they're ultimately going to have to admit, we have no authority on these matters. So, Jesus asks the question, answers the question with the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He asks that in verse 30. Now, it seems unrelated at first, almost like Jesus is trying to distract them, but it's so crucial because the ministry of John the Baptist is closely related to the ministry of Jesus, because John the Baptist was the prophet who foretold the coming of Jesus. He is the one, whenever Jesus came on the scene, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who baptized Jesus so that Jesus would be one who fulfilled all righteousness. He claimed and declared that Jesus was the Messiah. So to affirm John the Baptist's ministry was ultimately to affirm Christ's authority. So Jesus asked the religious leaders this question, and they didn't really know how to answer. We kind of get to be a fly on the wall in their conversation whenever it comes to verse 31. They say, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why then did you not believe John the Baptist? But shall we say from man? And then they're afraid of the people because all the people said, yeah, John the Baptist was legitimately a prophet. So so they don't want to affirm his ministry, they don't want to deny his ministry. To say it's from man, uh, if you look later in the book of Acts, Acts 5, there's this Jewish teacher Gamaliel, and he says, hey, if this is from God, if this is from heaven, it's kind of another way to say that, then this will ultimately succeed. But if it's from man, then you don't need to worry about it because it will ultimately fail. And so really this is, hey, was John the Baptist's ministry legitimate and from God, or was this just kind of something that took place for a little bit that really isn't going to have any bearing on history in the long term but to make a statement about John's authority was going to put the religious leaders own authority in jeopardy so they're kind of at a stalemate here in verse 33 they break their huddle and you kind of see them answer Jesus i like to imagine stuff like this whenever i'm you know reading the gospels cuz they walk over to him and they just say we do not know and i like to think they didn't say that really boldly like one guy probably shuffled his feet forward and was like i don't know he's like what what would you say we don't don't know. We We don't know about John the Baptist. And ultimately, Jesus realizes here, as he kind of motions to the crowd, his disciples standing there, that those who are supposed to be the leading authority for spiritual, moral, and religious life have just admitted to what seems like a very simple question, we don't know. They did not have the authority that they claimed to have. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And what has just happened? Christ has established his authority. He's been doing this all along, right? I mean, his his authority is... He, he he has authority, and here he is revealing his authority, establishing his authority. Now we often say at the Oaks that whenever we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. What do we mean by that? Well, it means that whenever I read Mark eleven twenty seven through thirty three, and whenever I bring it to you today, that we have to ask, okay, how does how does the Bible here? How does the, the person of Christ present through Scripture convict, challenge, encourage me? You see, the religious leaders, they rejected the authority of Christ when the facts were literally standing in front of them. When the Messiah was standing in front of them, they deny and oppose the authority of Christ in order to establish their own. And as Jesus did in this passage, you and I must confront the Pharisee within us all. We must recognize that in our self-righteousness, our arrogance, or perhaps just ignoring God's command, we often substitute the authority that Christ has with our own. So let's consider for a moment, what do we mean if we talk about authority? It was just mentioned a lot of times. Let's not assume that we just kind of all have the same definition of authority. Authority is the power and position to give commands, set rules, and govern a determined people or area. All right, so you don't have to write that down. If you want to look at the notes that come out in the weekly, you can But authority is the power and the position to give commands, to set rules, and to govern a determined people or an area. That's kind of the broad definition. Now let's consider uh, our typical response to authority. I mentioned this earlier. Many of us don't like it. Why? Because authority sometimes feels oppressive or it feels unfair. It feels restrictive. There are so many movies you could just list them where there's kind of this hero that rises from under the ranks and they're subverting this oppressive authority and we cheer for that person, right? Because in so many ways, our our sinful tendency is to want to be the one in charge because somehow our sinful disposition leads us to believe that our lives would actually be less, or actually be more free if we were under no authority. Uh, Many people don't like authority because they've lost trust in those that are given positions of authority. And oftentimes that is for good reason. When flawed people, which is important, when flawed people have authority, it is often abused for selfish gain. Or the responsibility that comes along with authority by some is abdicated. And so people have authority, but then they just abdicate it. They don't act on it, and the weak and the voiceless suffer for it. Let me, let me encourage you in this way. Don't let the misuse of authority by some cause you to reject the authority of Christ. Yes, there are countless examples of ways that authority has been used wrong, but Christ is righteous, and he uses his authority in the right way. He has authority, which means that Christ has the power and position to give commands, to set rules, and to govern a determined people or area. Just his people and the entire world. Now, let's speak about Christ's authority a little bit. His authority is an intrinsic authority. That's important. It's an intrinsic. Now, elected officials or leaders, they are given authority. That authority is granted to them by the people uh, who put them in place, who elected them. And then there are other categories of authority. So like teachers, pastors, police officers, football coaches, they're given positional authority. All right, so their authority only goes as far as the position that they have and what that position translates to when it comes to authority. So a football coach, yes, they can call plays on the field, but they can't determine, you know, who you marry. They can't speak into things like, hey, this is how you should spend all of your money. Uh, their, their power, their position is limited. Uh, Christ is not limited in position because his authority is intrinsic. Uh, Christ was not granted his authority by us. No, Christ has authority because he is the second person of the Trinity. It is intrinsic to his nature as God. And ultimately, he has authority because he purchased his people with the price of his own blood. You see, the author of life has authority over it. Therefore, the authority of Christ transcends and extends to all areas of life. So let me be specific. His authority extends to all areas of your life. So what happens when we reject or deny that authority? Let me tell you. Let me just speak to you real plainly. When you reject the authority of Christ, it leads to chaos, confusion, and a complete lack of, inst- of stability. If you're not a Christian and you are here, maybe maybe you'd say I'm rejecting Christ because I don't want someone else to be in control of my life. Then I bet that the freedom that you claim to have doesn't really feel like freedom. If that's where you're at and you're like no, I ultimately want to be in control of my life. How stable is your life? Do you feel at peace or do you feel like your life is in chaos? Is your life marked by Questions answered or confusion? I mean, just on a heart level, let me tell you, there is no comfort or certainty apart from knowing Christ and submitting to Him. Now, you could claim that, that there is no authority, but where will that get you? Let's Just think about that on a cultural level. If there is no authority, that leads to anarchy. Well, nobody wants that. Nobody wants a life that is in constant flux and chaos where there is no authority. So you could hold to a view of secular humanism. Right, we're getting into some philosophy now. What is this? It is a, a secular ideology that is really popular in our day that just claims, okay, well, there is a, an authority, but really it's myself. I can be my own standard of morality and what is good and right in the world because I am a trustworthy person. Through human reason, we can all reach kind of this agreed upon morality and be our own authority. To sum it up, secular humanism is the declaration that we can be good without God. That's dangerous. It's a rejection of Christ's authority for human autonomy. And the problem is that humanism never deals with the guilt that you feel. Uh, even if you've come to this conclusion of this is the standard of morality, how often do you hit that standard? Never. And so what do you do? Well, you change the standard. And then it's got to be compared to someone else. Now, you can't be good without God. You always have this sneaking suspicion that something could go completely wrong and your worldview would be left in shambles. So affirming and submitting to the authority of Christ, as we often say, is much like placing a train on its tracks. Now go with me here. A train isn't free when you set it on a highway. I've liberated this train and I've placed it on I-71. Now why would that not work? Well, a train is most free when it runs on the tracks that it was designed for. In the same way, we experience freedom and flourishing when we run on the tracks of Christ's authority for our lives, affirming and submitting to Christ's authority. So let's say that you are there. You'd say, I am a Christian. I I wouldn't claim secular humanism. I'm not for anarchy. I submit. I affirm to Christ's authority and rule in my life. So you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus. Now, here are two pitfalls that remain, and I think all of us need to be aware of them. First is affirmation of Christ's authority without submission to Christ's authority. So there's this pitfall of affirmation without submission. And the next one would be there's no priority of authority. So we have different authorities in our life, but there's no priority to our authority. Let's talk about those quickly, uh, because I think so much heartache in uh, the Christian world and specifically that I see in the lives of people comes from these two pitfalls. Right, We're talking about the authority of Christ, getting really practical here. The process of sanctification or Christian growth is learning to submit all of life to Christ's authority. Now, let me tell you, there was this dangerous teaching, this heresy that kind of rose up in the 1950s called the Lordship Salvation Debate. And here was the claim that those who argued the heresy made. They said that at one point in your life, you could perhaps receive Christ as Savior, I need him uh, because I have sins and I want to go to heaven when I die, so I accept Christ as Savior. But then later, at some point in life, when there's this revelation of spiritual maturity, then Christ becomes Lord over your life. And these are kind of two different Well, that's a heresy because ultimately for Christ to be Savior of your life, he must also be Lord over your life. There's no separation in these things. You can't dissect the Christian life. We know from our middle school biology class that the only way that you can dissect something is if it is dead. And the only way that this doctrine caught on is because people wanted to have the benefits of salvation without the responsibility of submitting to Christ's authority. But ultimately, this is a dead doctrine. As Hudson Taylor once said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Christ is both Savior and Lord. And so where does that leave us? It is to submit to Christ, not only in saying, I am a sinner who is dead in my sin in need of grace for life and salvation, but also to say, Lord, you have purchased me and you own all my life. There's not one aspect of my being in which you cannot claim that belongs to me. It reminds me of John 14, 21, where Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Look at that verse for a moment. How do you display your love for Christ? How is it made known? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Oh, is that works-based salvation? No. No. It is you are saved by grace, not by works. But those who are saved by grace display it through obeying Christ. Our love for him is made known through our obedience. We teach this to our children. How do you show us that you love us by ultimately trusting us enough to obey what we say? The Puritan John Owen once described how we love God in four ways, and this is kind of taking a sidestep from what we're talking about, but I found this so immensely helpful in my Christian life that I wanted to share it with you. He says, Our love for Christ includes four things, resting in Him, delighting in Him, revering Him, and obeying Him. By these four things, we hold communion with the Father in His love. How do I experience the presence of God? How do I, how do I grow in my love of God? These four things. How rest in Him, and I have assurance. I delight in him. This brings me joy to run to your word. Whenever events like this week happen, I can run to Psalm 46. I revere God. It's not a flippant relationship. I know he, he rules the world. And ultimately, we obey him. Right? That's why we use language of obedience to God instead of just victory over sin, because victory can kind of be personal, whereas obedience carries with it, there is one who is worthy of obeying. Submitting to Christ's authority through obedience is ultimately an indicator of how much we truly love him. And there is no one, there is no one more worthy of our love and affection than Christ. You see, he came to seek and to save the lost. And that's us. He came to save sinners like us. He is near. He is ever present in our time of trouble. He has defeated our greatest fears, our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death. He took upon himself the sin that stood between us and God the Father. He gave the Holy Spirit to live within us who daily leads us to him. And we gladly submit to his authority ultimately because we love him. The love that we display, as the book of Romans says, was first poured into our hearts because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to be reminded of this because the religious leaders who were familiar with the scriptures got it all wrong. They limited God's authority. And so they just kind of said, well, you know, this, this view of God, the authority of Christ, shouldn't affect my view of self. And so they they became to think of themselves as superior, better than everyone else, not having to submit themselves to the same scriptures that they taught. Instead of being humble, they were self-righteous. They didn't submit to the authority of Christ in their treatment of others. They manipulated other people as they turned the temple of God into a marketplace. Their worship should have been dependent upon their relationship with God. But instead, it became full of empty rituals that were just kind of about God, hollow, and only echoing the truth that once was there. You see, the all-encompassing authority of Christ causes us to submit to Christ in all things. Let me ask, are you submitting to Christ in all areas of your life? And this is not as much a question from your pastor to you as it is ultimately a question from the Holy Spirit for each of us to answer. Am I submitting to Christ's authority in my time management, in my priority of Christian community, in my entertainment, in my money, the way I view dating, my parenting, the way that I cope with current events? Or do we find ourselves accidentally living as functional atheists who are trying to be our own authority, believing that there is not one who has authority in which we affirm and submit to So this is kind of the first Christian pitfall that's there. The second is having no priority to the authorities in your life. Now, I think that this is perhaps one of our greatest problem because the day and age we live in is not so much that people are always thinking that they are their own authority or that there is no authority in people's life, but that there are too many authorities that we have placed speaking into our lives. I mean, let's just take a snapshot of the life that we live in. We live in an age where most people have a CrossFit coach and a financial advisor and a therapist and a pastor and parents who are telling them what to do and then professors and then a nutritionist and then probably someone that I'm not even thinking of right now. We have all of these, you know, the cacophony of voices speaking into our lives and we assume sometimes that just because someone has a degree hanging on their wall or because it costs money to hang out with them that we should listen to what they have to say. And I'm not trying to promote skepticism here or to make you distrust anybody who is speaking into your life, but my heart is broken by the amount of Christians that I know who have received bad advice from maybe well-meaning people. And so this is worthy of addressing as we consider that Christ has intrinsic authority, He is our authority, and then how He implements that authority in the world. I recently heard of uh, this story that uh, I was listening to a counseling podcast and this premarital counselor uh, was talking about another case in which um, there was this young couple that had come in, this is not a story, from Cincinnati, and they were engaged to be married. And so the premarital counselor, in order to make sure that their marriage was going to get off on a healthy start, claiming to be a Christian counselor, showed the man who was in the counseling session, explicit images, and this was his justification. He said, I wanted to make sure that these images had some kind of effect on this man so that I could assure the young couple that they would have healthy intimacy in marriage. Now, why would would any claiming Christian counselor do something like that? I mean, whenever we think about the authorities in our lives, be it a therapist or a pastor or a trusted friend or our parents, we have to weigh the things that they say with the authority of Christ. And while this is an extreme case that is kind of designed to, to, you know, be smelling salts to the soul, we have to admit that we're susceptible to kind of receiving advice from someone that that seems well-meaning and taking it to heart sometimes ignoring the authority of Christ in the situation, especially if that person claims to be a Christian. So here are a few questions that will hopefully guide you in submitting to Christ's authority under the advice of others. And this is just street level. Maybe this is something you put on an index card and, you know, keep on your dashboard or something you flip to in your Bible. I don't know, or just listen to it now and you don't have to think about it again. Four questions for applying Christ's authority to everyday life. First, what does the Bible say about this? I know it seems obvious, but... We need to be reminded. I mean, think about something like recreational marijuana use. So while this might be legal in some states, Galatians 5.18 and Proverbs 23 forbids any Christian to be under any substance that impairs our mental capacity. So we must consult Scripture on something that in some places the government would even say, hey, this is, this is okay. Legally, you're fine here. Well, what, is, what does the Bible say about this? because Christ has authority. He implements that through Scripture. Second question, is this sinful? Well, that young couple in the counselor's office should have immediately said, this is bad counsel because this is a sinful practice. Yes, some things are a matter of conscience, but some things are clearly not. They're just sinful. Sometimes the best way to answer this question whenever it comes to gray areas of your life is to ask the question, how would I feel if everyone knew about this? Right? So you're like, well, I don't know if this is a sin or not. How would you feel if everybody knew about that? I mean, I think about that every time I go to swipe my Oaks church card. It's like the financial stewardship team will see this. Jimmy does expense reports. Like, is this a justifiable expense? Would I want everybody to to know, you know, the way that I'm using church funds? Would you want everyone to know that thing that you're like, well, it could be justifiable. Think about it. Is it sinful? Third, does it glorify God? So this question moves beyond uh, the action at hand to just say, well, is this sinful or not? But really gets to the heart, the motivation behind it. Does this glorify God more than it would if I, if I refrained? Is, is this something that is helpful, glorifying to God? And fourth and finally, what do those that I trust in my faith family say? We are better together. And that is something we have said all year long. And I'm speaking of those in our faith community, be it the pastors that God has put in place, MC leaders that you have speaking into your life, trusted uh, Christian friends who walk alongside you. I want you to know that uh, God has placed your Christian community around you for your good, so that you can bounce ideas off of one another, so that uh, they can point you to scriptures you perhaps are not aware of so that you can navigate life. Our, our elders, we have seven elders for a little over 150 church members because it's our desire to be accessible. Now, we are sheep at the same time that we are shepherds, we are fallible, and we're trying to grow as much as we can, but we at least want to help you walk through big things in your life. So maybe you're thinking about changing career paths or relocating or a certain parenting style or a future spouse, like anything like that. Uh, These are things where, you know, you'd say, well, I'm not sure if this is glorifying to God or not. I don't think it's sinful. And this is kind of what the Bible says principially. but I need someone else to help me apply this knowledge so that it becomes wisdom. We want to be able to walk with you through that. We want to be able to point you to good resources so that we can do that together. Because ultimately, Christ has authority over our lives, and the authority of Christ is displayed through the church that he is head over, as Colossians 1 says. Now, let me make two invitations at this point in the sermon. First, if you've heard all this and you are a non-Christian, I'm inviting you to trust Christ. Let me tell you why. And I don't want this to be offensive. I don't want this to be more offensive than it needs to be. You are insufficient and you are an untrustworthy authority in your life. You are most likely dissatisfied with your current worldview because you were created to know the one who created the world and has authority over you. And to have the joy, peace, and stability that comes in life is ultimately to know God who is the author of it. And to have that relationship with God, you simply need to repent and to believe. To repent and to confess, God, I've tried to live as my own authority or to trust the authority of others, and it has led to destruction and consequences that I can't cope with. It is to repent and to believe and to say, Christ, you have ultimate authority, and you have displayed that by your perfect obedience, by your death on the cross and your resurrection, and now I am entrusting my life completely into your authority. The simple prayer for you to pray would be, I surrender and I believe. Christ, I I surrender and I believe. To the best of my knowledge, I surrender and I believe. Now, if you're already a Christian, I'm inviting you to submit to Christ's authority in all areas of life to submit to Christ's authority as your highest priority. I'm not saying to drive out all of the other voices in your life and never to take the advice of your parents or a trusted counselor or a therapist. We need those people in our lives. I have, you know, people speaking into my life that are on most of the names on that list. I consult our elders as a fellow member of this church weekly on things that I'm doing. We must consult others And yet, Christ's authority is the highest priority in our lives. This section of application was so easy for me to write because I need to be reminded of this often. Sometimes I just do things because it's the path of least resistance or because it gets results. Without maybe asking the question, does this honor God? Am am I submitting to the authority of Christ? I I was talking to another church member the other day, and I, I asked the question, should Christians take pre-workout before they go to the gym? And I know that's like, well, that's weird. But it seems a little excessive. And it's just like, well, I mean, I don't know. I've never thought of that before. Like, if I really want to submit to Christ's authority in all areas of life, then I need to bring everything before him and, and ask, hey, does this honor God's Word? Is this something that is sinful or harmful? Is this something that, you know, my Christian community would affirm Does this glorify God? We were bought with a price, and our life is under the authority of Christ. So with this conversation about authority in view, Jesus tells a story about the authority that was given to the religious authorities in that time period. Now, we'll be brief, so a typical sermon of mine, point one is like 80% of it, and then we're rolling into point two at Yeah, whatever time it is. Okay. All right. Chapter 12, verse 1. And he, being Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. He's telling a story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Here's the second thing that we see in this passage, is that we should receive and obey Christ as the cornerstone. See, after the Pharisees admit that they can't answer the question that Jesus proposes to them, he tells them the story that really gives kind of a parallel of the sin that they have committed, the sin of the religious elite. So they rejected Christ uh, on one hand, and then they abdicated the responsibilities that they should have had. And, and that's going to be revealed in the story he tells. So let's summarize the story real quick, and I'll tell you what it means. Jesus tells this story of a master who owns a vineyard. And so in that time period, the owner of a vineyard uh, might not live in the same place that the vineyard is. And so he would lease out that vineyard to tenants. And then the rent payment of the tenants would be to provide fruit and grapes from that vineyard. And so he would come back and collect or send servants who would collect, in this case, even sending his own son. But here, in the parable, the tenants begin to take advantage of their master, so they're living off of his land and then giving him nothing in return. They're making a profit and taking advantage of him, and so he sends servants, and what happens? They beat them, they ultimately kill the servants, and so then the master sends his own son, and in that time period, if the, the heir was taken away, if the master was no longer around, then whoever was on the land would be able to assume full ownership of it. So they kill the son thinking, all right, we can take ownership of this vineyard. And then the response from the master is that he rips the vineyard away from the evil tenants and gives it to a different group of tenants. Well, in a couple paragraphs, Jesus has just summarized the entire scope of redemptive history. And they realize that he is talking to them. Uh, the religious leaders become the primary antagonists in this story. And they know that he is talking about them. In a, in a parable, not everything has like a one to one correlation. And yet, here we see six elements that are extremely crucial. You can talk more about these uh, in your MC or, or later. I just want to run through them really fast. Here are the main elements, elements in this parable one, it's the man who planted the vineyard, who is God. Then there's the vineyard, which represents Israel. And there's the tenant farmers, which was the Jewish religious leaders. Then you have the landowner's servants, which would be prophets and priests who remained faithful to God. Those, they were preaching through, to Israel all throughout the Old Testament, uh, ultimately ending with John the Baptist. Then you have the son, who represents Jesus. And then the others to whom the vineyard was given, which would ultimately be the Gentiles, the non-Jew-believing nations. So Jesus is calling out the religious leaders here that God had entrusted to lead Israel in faithfulness he's now inviting the Gentiles to come and know God as those who the vineyard has been given to because the religious leaders weren't bearing the fruit that God designed for them to bear. They were supposed to uh, be faithful to the people of Israel and then the Gentiles would be grafted into the people of God and this kind of uh, Israel would be all who walked with God, both Jew and Gentile. Ultimately, they would end up taking the life of God's only beloved son. Now they know that the Jesus is talking about them because in Isaiah chapter 5, there's what's called the vineyard song, where, I, where Israel is represented as this vineyard of God that he tends. And then what we see is that Assyria is going to be the ones who judge the vineyard. But this is slightly different in that it's not the vineyard that is being judged or the vine that is being judged, but it's actually uh, the tenants who are called to steward the vineyard who are being judged. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 118, to sum it up for us and declares that he is the cornerstone. Now, if you remember, this is the same psalm that was quoted on the streets of the triumphal entry as they were saying, Hosanna, please save us. And here he brings it up again as a Passover psalm. It points to Christ and it became the description of these first century leaders. They rejected Christ who is the cornerstone. Ultimately, They rejected his authority. They did not build their life upon him as the cornerstone. Now, we've talked about the authority of Christ at length. This story is just really kind of another perspective to view it from, and so here are a couple takeaways of things that we see now, perhaps that we didn't see in just the description of what happened before. This story reveals the patience and mercy of God, which I think we could miss if we just kind of walk through it to begin with. I don't think it's something that I saw until later in the week. You see, they didn't deserve multiple chances to get it right, and because God is gracious and patient with people, they get servant after servant, prophet after prophet, priest and preacher, and then ultimately the Son of God is sent. God is gracious and merciful, but He is also the God who judges. You never know when your last chance to respond to God's mercy will be. He is a God who saves those who repent and turn to him, and he is a God who judges those that do not. So, may we run to the God who is gracious and merciful. And whenever we see areas in our life, whenever we are looking at that list and the pitfalls that we fall into, and we're thinking, oh, I do that. I did that this week. I didn't submit to Christ's authority here. He is gracious and merciful. Run to him. This is ultimately a warning of of caution that invites us into the presence of God to repent and believe. We also see that God will not let injustice go unpunished. That's such a good reminder today. It may not always happen when we want it, but according to Amos 5.24, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When armed shooters enter elementary school and trusted Christian leaders are named in sexual abuse reports, we are tempted to cry out, justice is a myth. But God's wrath will be satisfied against every sinner. The wrath of God against sin is fully satisfied for those who trust in Christ because it is placed upon Christ. And the wrath of God will be worked out in eternal damnation and present consequences for those who have chosen to turn away from Him and to inflict harm on others. And finally, what do we see? God's heart for the nations. You see, the vineyard of God's kingdom now belongs to all who believe. Being a Jew is now a matter of the heart. To be a Jew is to be a Jew inwardly. It's not about our ethnic heritage or uh, our religious pedigree, but simply coming to Christ and he transforms us from the inside out. You can know God because he has made himself known and you can make God known to others because he has made himself known to you. So what does that mean as we reflect on these things? that We are merciful because God is merciful. We fight for justice for the overlooked and underserved because we serve a God who is just and righteous. We are a church for the nations. We believe that the gospel is good news for all people because we belong to the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We are a people who affirm and submit to Christ's authority because he is our cornerstone. Let's pray.